So I'm speaking with composer uh, Phil Eisler, whose unique voice and talents as a storyteller have been uh, have seen him uh, quickly rise from being that nuanced sound in indie darlings like On the Ice and Natural Selection to scoring mega-hit TV series like Revenge and Empire, uh, powerful documentaries such as Newtown, and popular features such as How to Be Single, and now uh, Chips, uh, Phil... Uh, Thank you, thank you, my friend, for uh, for joining us again. Thank you, man. <laughs> um, so, have you been? How are things? Good, good, really good, and you know, really interesting projects and fun, and you know, new new baby. So new baby. Generally, a circus. <laughs> a lot, of, yeah, a lot of projects. <laughs> um, so we've talked many many times before, and I know we did we did an awesome. Uh, video interview uh, last time we talked so if anyone listening right now and wants to check out a really cool all access with Phil definitely check that out on Film Music Media but um so to start for those of you who for those who may not know kind of your unique path to to, to becoming a film composer I was wondering if you could kind of talk about uh, how music played a role in your life early in your life you know the rock and roll days and how did it all lead to becoming a composer in Hollywood I, I like the, the what was it you said a unique unique, unique path <laughs> I think I picked the lock to the back door. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, how did it start? Well, okay, so I was born in Prague, and right. um, my, you know, my dad is musical, although he's not a musician, and my grandmother is a is a professional musician. She's well, she's a hundred. She's about to turn hundred one, actually. Wow. Um, but she she was a, a big influence on me musically, sort of early on. As were my parents, because you know, living in Czechoslovakia, then there was very little access to the to the West and to right. to anything modern. So basically, we had whatever records they'd sort of salvage with them when they were actually in in, uh, in England. When you know, my dad was going to college at Oxford, right. the Russians invaded Prague, and literally went back to Prague with whatever albums they'd had. You know, mm. him and um. So we were sort of stuck in this weird time warp somewhere between, I, I guess, like 1967 and <laughs> and sort of the early 70s, right? Right. So by the time I got old enough to, to listen to music, it was sort of the early, you know, to, to, to listen to music. I mean, I was listening to music all, right. all the time. But to sort of be thinking about it much, I guess, was sort of the early 80s. Um, and, you know, they had... What did they have? They had this really weird little <laughs> eclectic collection of records, which was sort of the last few Beatles records. That was the the big thing for me, you know, right. just like everything else. Um, uh, Dark Side of the Moon, right. uh, um, Armed Forces, which I still think is like the songwriting bible. Outside the Beatles is this, the the total bible of songwriting. Uh, techniques and tricks. I think it's 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 just yeah, of course, one of the one of the best albums in the world. <laughs> um, and then this really bizarre Deep Purple record called "Come Taste the Band," which is still the most hilarious non-spinal tap album title ever. <laughs> uh, but the, but the album introduced me to this guitar player called Tommy Bolin, who was who died tragically young. I think he was like twenty three or four when he died of a heroin overdose. Oh, wow. But he played on a handful of records. He he played, I think it was with a James gang, uh, probably either before or after um, Joe Walsh. He was with Billy Cobham for like one album, and then suddenly he's in Deep Purple, which really wasn't Deep Purple anymore. It was like when the whole band had quit and... 
I think it was literally like the drummer and the keyboard player left and they were out doing a ton of cocaine one night and went, hey, should we just hire loads of session musicians and still call it Deep Purple and no one will notice? And um, so they so they get this completely different lineup together. That's By the way, this is massive revisionist Deep Purple history I'm leading you in on. I bet you weren't expecting this for an answer, were you? Not at all, but I love it. If any Deep Purple fan hears this, I'm probably going to burn my house down. Um, but anyway, basically, it sounds nothing like Deep Purple. It's like Deep Purple playing funk from the like the the funkadelic era it's the yeah. fucking weirdest album of all time with david coverdale singing on it <laughs> over the top um anyway massive influence on me obviously right and uh um so that you know then when i moved to england i was about roughly nine years old or something and um grew up in south london and you know with all the sort of 80s stuff you'd expect and everything and and then um, I had a sort of side-by-side -side upbringing musically from all of this rock and pop stuff that was, you know, what I was really into when I was a kid. And then the, the classical stuff that I was being forced into as a kid, right. which I'm now very glad I was because, you know, now orchestral music is sort of, right. you know, my, I suppose my, my stock in trade in some ways, but really having come from this background of being in bands i think i approach it a little differently but i got a lot of my education from you know through my grandmother who studied with gustav holst when she was a little wow. kid wow um and um um you know so it's the, those two traditions sort of came up at the at the same time and then you know my 20s basically i was in bands after right. once school was done i was i was in bands and i was with robbie williams who no one's ever heard of in america but they is the biggest artist on the planet everywhere else on the right. planet um and that gave me an excuse to be silly and do all of that shit when i was you know in my 20s and had the stamina to withstand the hangovers yeah and you know made lots of records and, and produced lots of records and and um i think i just came into film by being in la it's something i'd always wanted to do but i wasn't the guy that moved to la going i'm gonna be the next john williams you know i i mean and I love John Williams. He's one of my favorite composers on the planet, but I don't want to be John Williams. Right. I don't want to be anybody else, really, you know, I mean, least of all know how to be anybody else anyway. Well, you want to be uh, yourself. You want to be Phil, Phil Eisler. <laughs> it's the hardest thing in the world, Kaya, being <laughs> Phil Eisler. It is. It's that hard. Lots of load bollocks. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, you you have a bunch. You have, last time we we went over kind of your entire career and everything, but I kind of want to focus on some, you know, of course, focus on chips. But I do want to talk about, um, uh, briefly talk about Newtown because yeah. I think it's a topic that should always be in conversation. And uh, you scored this really powerful documentary about the tragedy, you know, at Sandy Hook, uh, which the tragedy was in 2012. The documentary came out last year, but it's been getting such great momentum behind it. And I think now more than ever. You know, and we have a team of lunatics running the country uh, yep. in the Oval Office uh, that we need to be reminded about how important um, social subjects such as gun control, among many others, you know, are being threatened right now. And, um, and I just was kind of curious. I always found this interesting duality uh, that film can give us an escape from reality, but mm -hmm. it also can shine a light directly on it, like with, docu with documentary filmmaking. And in your opinion, uh, is documentary filmmaking becoming more important in our culture to seek out the truths kind of behind the headlines you know i think it always has been i i think it depends on how much of a spotlight is being shone on 
it as a medium. Right. Um, you know, I mean, there have been many, many documentaries over the the decades. You know, that I think that I think uh, uh, pr- provided both important information and sometimes misinformation. True, because you can very easily manipulate information everything, through everything is a point of view and that's fine yeah. you know um funnily enough what really attracted me to newtown in a way i mean obviously you know like if you if you read john burlingame's article about it you know i sort of i, I sort of laid this out that it that you know i sort of came clean that this was a little bit of an accident how i got involved with it even though it is Right. It's it's a subject, and and because it's a subject, I'm very passionate about that. I but I didn't actually know there was a film being made. Um, it's just that uh, um, Maria Cuomo Cole, who produced the movie, is a friend of mine, and and I sort of know that she's she's well known for her charity work, for, mostly for for the homeless um, in in New York, and, and she's married to Kenneth Cole, who's who's a long time. Um, proponent of gun control and you know he's he spent a lot of his time and money um trying to shine a spotlight on that problem so right, right. so you know we i mean you can pick any tragedy of the week in this country really and without wanting to get too political about it um that's what our conversation was based on and the thing is we could have had the same conversation any week since then or before then yeah about that subject i mean if you look at what happened in london today yeah it's uh, terrible um, and my my heart goes out to those families, and and um, it's absolutely awful. But I just shudder to think what would have happened if that was somebody with with a semi-automatic pistol or a or a assault rifle. Right. Might have been, you know, who knows? Maybe it was fourteen people instead of four people there. To you know, there's no good outcome to this. But yeah. um, but that's sort of partly where the conversation began, as and. Uh, and then Maria said, and, and I said, look, the reason I'm calling you is because, you know, I have a kid growing up in this country now, two kids, and it's all very new to me. I, I understand that guns are a part of your culture, but it it freaks me out how how the proliferation of this this problem and of and of weapons and and uh, and I I don't know what to do as a parent. So I'm I was really calling her for advice. Yeah, yeah, and. She said, well, funny you should say that. I'm making a movie about um, Sandy Hook. And at that point, I sort of felt like the floor opened up beneath me. And I went, oh, shit. Because I think that's very much a, I think that's very much a sort of um, good way of describing how we all somewhat become armchair activists. Right. Social media. Yeah. And when you're to do something real which might actually affect you emotionally or, or maybe even physically by putting yourself in harm's way somewhere or something. That wasn't my situation, but just right. even to, to have to deal with something like that head on, you know, you suddenly go, Oh fuck. Yeah. Cause when those documentaries about kids being blown to bits in Syria, come on, we all turn the telly off. And you know, it's, it's very, very hard to look at that. It's, you know, if you're a parent, it's very, very hard to look at of course, yeah. kids being hurt to th- because everybody thinks about their own situation and, and all the rest of it. So, um, but you know, after sort of a lot of conversations with my wife, we sort of decided that it was really important for me to do it. And, um, the reason was because I wasn't just looking for some place to rant politically. Yeah. Like I clearly do on Facebook and Twitter. Right. 
um, to no avail, really. I mean, you might change your mind here or there, but, you know, social media is just a shit show. It's, as much as as much as it can do some good, it's it's not going to help you. It's I'd sort of liken it to yelling out of the window in the middle of the night. You right, know? yeah. Um, so the the thing about this film was that it's it's really insofar as it's possible for a movie like this to not be political i think it's not i think it's and and what it's done in the months since it's first been released and by the way it's about to be given a much wider audience on pbs uh next month which is That's great we're also doing a soundtrack album and all of the proceeds of that are going to sort of further their advocacy work wow it's fantastic yeah. I'll qualify that by saying what the movie's done since its initial release and what I mean by advocacy is not anything in the slightest bit preachy. It's that the whole point is to start a conversation between the two sides of this debate. So you're talking about if you want to simplify it, the gun control people and the second amendment people. Right. And I hate to polarize, you know, people like that, but just for the sake of not being here for the next three hours talking about gun control, exactly. the idea is to start a conversation and it's really done that, you know, the, the, the premiere of the movie at Sundance was one of the most powerful things I've ever been at. Um, if you can imagine being in a room with not only the filmmakers and an audience that hasn't seen the film before, but a lot of the families from Newtown who lost their kids, um, not seeing the film for the, I think they had seen the film, uh, before that, but that was the first time they were seeing the finished thing, um, in front of an audience. And, you know, that's a fucking heavy thing. And to have lived it and then experience it that, yeah. And it was a heavy thing to be in that room with those people. And it was a, it was a huge honor to be in the, in the room with those people that were, that really were doing something. Right. What they were doing was getting in front of audiences across the country and saying, listen, I don't know how you feel about guns. I don't know how you feel about the second amendment, but I can tell you how I feel about losing a child. And now let's talk. Yeah. Right. And we got, you know, questions from all sorts of people, from cops who were very skeptical about any, you know, any kind of gun control conversation, or Second Amendment people who felt felt the same, to people who were vehemently anti-gun. You got to remember, this is in Utah as well. That's a very red. Right. You know, so it was just a really interesting thing, and and the whole process of doing it was very interesting. I decided that my point of view on the movie was going to be too polarized, and it. it, it I didn't want just my point of view on the movie and I wanted to see what would happen if maybe a couple of other people joined me. And in the end, That's right. you know, somewhere in the region of 17 composers joined me and it got, it was a really, again, it, that was a massively humbling experience because I started out by calling a few friends and thinking, Hey, do you want to do something? You know, and maybe we'll contribute whatever money we make to continuing these debates, you know, cause it all costs money for them to exactly. go to far flung corner of America. And if, and nobody said no, you know, so I ended up with a sort of um, embarrassment of riches, really. That's amazing. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing to see something like that grow. And, and t it does start, it's, it's, you know, very small film that grows, but the, the, the message is what kind of stands out. And that's great that it's being shown on PBS and kind of getting a wider audience now. Um, yeah, it's, it's nice because it, the, the goal of this movie was never, obviously never any kind of financial success. And, and right very very rare that documentaries do that anyway yeah exactly. um but it but to, to actually you know make a change and i think that speaks to your question about 
how important documentaries are. And, and I think the most, I, I think the most illuminating answer I heard in any of the Q and A's after the, the film was screened was, um, Mark Barden, who, uh, who was the father of, uh, a child killed it. Mm. And who, you know, amongst a couple of the other families has, has become a friend and sort of a great advisor in all of this. Um, was asked the question, what should we do? And he, and they were asked the same question time and time again at, at almost every screening because people were hit so hard by the movie. Yeah. What could we do? And the answer invariably always ended up being sort of what's your superpower? What is it you do? Yeah. Right? Do that. Right. And, and do that to affect some change because if you're going to run for office, great. Okay. Then, then run for office. If that's not what you're going to do, if you're an artist, make art, do something, right. you know, if you have a way of influencing people, whether it's five people where you work or whether it's 5 million people on, you know, you're a Instagram star or something or whatever, you know, um, any, any way you can, I think the most powerful way to influence people is to sort of do, you know, Oh, we've got a BBC situation here. Someone's coming in behind. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks mate. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that, you know, it, it sort of, it was do what you do. So I, so to answer your question in my typically long winded way, you know, right. are documentaries important? Yeah, they fucking are. <laughs> <laughs> well, amazing answer. Um, I, I always love your insight on the, on the subject and I share all of your point of view and everything. So it's, it's, uh, I'm always happy to listen and, and, and hear your point of view on everything in, in Newtown. I know you do. And, and in a way it's so much more important to reach out to the people who don't agree with us. And exactly. I think just the whole situation we're in, you know, way past guns. I mean, with everything, you know, yeah, it's so, a, it's a mess. <laughs> if, if we're not talking to the people who don't share our point of view, we're kind of fucked. Yeah. It's just, uh, yeah, just exactly. It's like, it's exactly. Like you said is yelling out a window. You see, we're, we're all friends with each other, you know, it's time to talk to people that maybe we don't converse with normally in everyday life and who share different point of views. And, there's 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 more middle ground than, than you think on almost everything. Yeah, absolutely. It's better. Yeah, that we you can continue the divide or come together. It's uh, yep. it's gonna be an, it's gonna be yeah very important in, uh, next four years. So we'll see how how everything goes. <laughs> but to 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 switch switch things a little bit, and you know we we shine a light on reality for a second. So let's escape reality a bit. Let's talk about chips. I mean, this is um. <laughs> that- <laughs> The escape from reality, yeah. From <laughs> Newtown to Chips. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a hard hard transition. But um, So this is a new movie you, uh, you scored, and I remember last time I was there, this, I think you were just, either you just were signed on to it, you were just starting to work on it. Um, uh, it was written, produced, directed, and starring Dax Shepard. And, and, co- and catered by. And catered by. <laughs> and, of course, it's the modern take on the classic TV series that everybody loves and that ran in the 70s and the 80s. Um uh, so when you first kind of started on the project, um, uh, what were the, I guess, the first kind of conversations about what the music is? You know, comedy is always a very tricky thing, especially kind of the modern R-rated comedy. Um, so what was the, the goal for the music in this film, and what did you set out to accomplish uh, with the score? Well, like with most things, Kyra, I set out to not fuck it up completely. <laughs> and uh, and that was uh, that's always my biggest challenge in life as in film scoring and um i, I, I you know the, when we started talking uh, dax and i and and also andrew who produced the movie 
um, there were lots of conversations it was before they shot the film. So there were lots of conversations about what it could be, what it was, you know, what it was intended to be and stuff. Right. Um, the really intuitive thing about Dax as a director is he, there's sort of, you know, the, the game plan and the film he sets out to make, but there's also the film that starts to take shape after the shooting process and the editing process, you know, which is always, it always takes on a life of its own. And I, I've, I've very rarely seen a director as adept as he was at sort of going with it and making sure he got the best out of what was there. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just an incredibly smart bloke um, and and really fun to work with and a real music head in the best possible sense. You know, just we, we both realized that we were very allergic to, we came up with the term studio rock very early on yeah. as <laughs> as a pejorative, you know. Um, meaning sort of, you know, somebody says, this really needs a rock band in it. And you immediately cringe because you know that's going to on some level mean a bunch of ponytailed session musicians from the 80s um, (laughs) doing some cheesy version of what it should and could have been, you know. So we we avoided that like the plague. And I knew, we sort of knew there was going to be a band element and an orchestral element. There's a lot of, there was a lot of really great ideas about how not to go down typical comedy roads. And one of the things that worked a lot was the, the, the movie opens with, um, with Jingo, the Santana song, um, which is, I think that's off the first record. The second record is like 1968, 69. Yeah. Just great. Like raw live Santana, very, very early Santana. And, that felt so great as an idiom in a way that we we sort of took that as a jumping off point for some things and i ended up actually putting a band together just specifically for the movie which was a really eclectic weird bunch of just fucking dangerous musicians who had who had very opinionated uh views deliberately i picked people like that so i had um you know, I had uh, the keyboard player from Death Cab for Cutie. I had, um, you know, t- two of my friends, Aaron Sterling, who's, who's I think, one of the most original drummers I've ever heard. Um, Kurt Schneider, who's, you know, just an g- amazing bass player. And Alex Acuna, who, who is, um, who is a, just a percussion god, really. He's, he's played with Santana amongst other people. I think he's, he's got to be nearly 70 now. He outplayed all of us like nobody. It was absolutely insane. So we had these very like specific elements that people would bring the the a real flavor of themselves into it. And you know, I wrote a lot of themes, and we we spent. It was sort of unusual. The, the first part of the process was us actually getting into the studio and stylistically just trying to change these themes into all sorts of different things. It was a right. Know, a drum and bass version of of th- this stuff, uh, you know, sort of la- louder, fuzzier versions of stuff, you know, and and then just things that I couldn't even describe. So it, it you know, whilst in comedy and especially a comedy like that, you're sort of expected to tip your hat to certain things, and we had to find a way of doing it that mm. wasn't just really cringe, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then also, it's an action movie in every sense of the word. The chases and the the explosions all of that shit is massive and it you know that needed a full-on orchestral score and i sort of took to that i think dax's first idea was that this was going to be a modern day lethal weapon 
Uh-huh. And I think it ended up being more of a comedy than that, but it, it certainly still had a lot of those elements where, you know, we had to do this big action score and that was just fun, man. It was, so you go from this little five, six piece band to a 90 piece orchestra. Wow. That's awesome like, that you got. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was probably the most fun I've ever had making a score, to be honest. It was really a great experience because my favorite part of all of this is being in a room with other musicians. Really? Right. I can sit here and make some kind of sound on every instrument and you get something you know get something i think i think in some ways it ends up being original sometimes you know on certain instruments because of my lack of ability um and then sometimes it's nice to take that and then really throw it open to people who you know who can play the shit out of that <laughs> and do it in a very unique way and Absolutely. it's fun sort of seeing those themes jump from that little band to this huge orchestra and you know it was fun yeah, I mean, and you, you kind of... Oh, sorry, something switched on and I just put my elbow on it. He just leaned on your, on your synth there. <laughs> created a masterpiece! Um, so yeah, you, you did mention that the term studio rock a little bit, and I then I, and I did want to ask, because I think um, it's, it's awesome to hear that you kind of pushed away from that, because I, I do think that the R-rated comedy is starting to, to develop a certain, I guess, expected sound, uh, and... Right. Um, but do you do you think I guess what's your opinion behind why that is the uh, it's almost becoming a, a, a genre thing that the score well, kind of has a rock element to it? Yeah, it's like anything else, isn't it? It's it's one gets successful and they they want to make a hundred more of them because yeah. it makes money. Yeah. Like I get it. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Um, uh, art and commerce have never been very um, comfortable bedfellows, have yeah, they? <laughs> But they have to be because because the the art part has to pay the fucking mortgage. So, yep, yep. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, business says get off your ass and get a job at Starbucks, mate. Right. Uh, so that might be the crudest analogy I've come up with this evening. <laughs> um, anyway, it they do develop a certain sound, but I mean, I I don't know if I'm I'm not claiming to have come in here and done like the you know something so wildly original that you've never heard anything like it's a guitar oh my god but, you know at the same time it's like with anything else you know there are billions of orchestral composers out there yeah. but we all have a sort of a certain approach to it and i think really the approach is in in a in the the melodies you write and the you know the, the kind of music you're writing for this medium and and sort of how you produce everything and and where it goes in the movie for me on something like this, it had the music had to be dirty, and I, I'm not I'm not a big fan of clean in general. If you like nice clean comedy pizzicato, you know, sort of uh, Tweety Bird music, <laughs> I'll go on record right here saying, don't hire me because you'll probably be quite disappointed. Um, but if uh, if you're looking for something sort of a bit filthier than that, then that's I'm probably more likely in your. Uh, in, um so the original tv series and it's it's not it's not the first uh movie that's been adapted from a tv series um did you uh did you uh, did you have any um i guess pressure to 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 touch back on the original um well it wasn't pressure it was sort of a um it was uh it was a mutually decided Um, well in it's such a great theme that it would it would have been 
a, it would have been a total travesty to pass it up. And also, you've got to remember that however much this is a reinvention and a reimagining or whatever, there's always going to be, there's, there's a lot of Chips fans who, in fact, one of them being my orchestrator who said to me very clearly when I took the gig, <laughs> don't fuck up my childhood. <laughs> like I was directing the bloody film. Um, but I said, all right then. And that kind of made me realize, you know, you've got to, um, you, you've got to tip your hat to it. It's, it became a, a really good comedy device amongst other things. That's awesome. Uh, and um, it was pretty magic when we first played that theme in the studio when the brass got in there because the very beginning of the movie is a sort of fanfare, you know, to just go, hey, Chips, thank you very much, you know, to the original. And right. played that in the studio. Everyone just stood up and it was a sort of a Rocky Balboa moment. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> punching the air. Hey, Chips! Um. So that was that was really fun, you know. Awesome. So kind of uh, looking, you know, to wrap up a little bit, just to ask a kind of a fun question. Is there any particular maybe TV series that you would be a fan to see turn into a film that hasn't been turned into a film yet? And maybe you would be the one to score it, you know? They, they've done the A-Team, haven't they? Um, they A-Team. I think they do a lot of Starsky and it, Hutch. And... I don't know. Is there anything left? I don't <laughs> I didn't have that much for time time for watching telly when I was a kid. Fucking hell, when you look like out playing football or something, how much telly did you watch? Um, they've done everything, I think. They've done 21 Jump Street, um, everything. Um, I can't think of, or there would be some obscure uh, English thing like Doctor Who that, you know, could never work as a, never work as a movie because it'd just be too, too high budget and well done. Um, but I don't know. I, I honestly never like with, with most things I do, I've, I've just been incredibly lucky in my career not to get pigeonholed in anyone, John, whether it's comedy or, you know, the next thing I'm doing is a, is, uh, a sci-fi horror movie and I'm doing a comedy right now. Um, so it's, you know, it's like, and then I'm doing this big sort of military thing. Hmm. So it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm very protective of that in a way, and and I'm not in a in a hurry to go, um, to go pigeonhole yourself. <laughs> re, you remake um, story time. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I made that up, but right. uh, <laughs> that's fair enough. It's an action thriller. Um, you know, if it's if it's a good project and it it comes along and I'm right for it, that's that's kind of all I want. That's awesome, and I mean, I've enjoyed your work since you know, since the beginning, and I've been such a huge fan of yours. And uh, oh, thank you, man. And uh, really enjoy uh, our chats and everything. And um, and I know you got you talk. You mentioned a comedy because you're. I think you're working with um, uh, Ben Falcone. I think on his uh, and Melissa McCarthy. Yeah, yeah. Who, so he was in Chips too. He's a supporting he, actor. He was. <laughs> he has a very brief, very funny cameo. Yeah. Um, and, and I really, you know, I really hope the film gets its due because it's, it, you know, we've been talking about sort of what an art, you know, it's, it's an R-rated comedy. Yes, it's all of that. But the thing that's really great about it is the chemistry between Dax Shepard and Michael Pena is just absolutely hysterical. And and there's a lot more to it than, than you know, scatological humor. Right. Um, <laughs> although there is some of that too. And, um, there should be. <laughs> so, yeah, so Ben's in it and... Um, so I'm doing Ben and Melissa's um, next movie, and they're an absolute delight. 
Well, I cannot wait to hear that one. That's going to be fantastic. And, uh, well, Phil, I want to thank you again for your time this evening. And uh, and uh, can't wait to, to do it again. <laughs> All right, man. Nice to talk to you.